We often, I think, fail to properly appreciate the burden that Jesus bore as he was headed toward Jerusalem. Second Corinthians chapter three, and we all with unveiled face beholding the glory of the Lord are, here it is, being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. So here Paul says, as we behold Christ, as we look to Christ, we are being transformed. Okay, so that word speaks of an outward change that's not a change in nature or in essence. So why does Paul use that word? Paul uses that word because that is the precise word that he wants to use to describe an exterior change, not a soul change or an essence change. You see, the word metamorphosis is never used to describe conversion. The word metamorphosis is never used to describe salvation because salvation is a change of essence, is a change of nature. It is a change of character. Instead, the word metamorphosis is used to describe sanctification. The inner has been changed. The nature has been changed with conversion. It is the outer that Paul is now speaking of. That's what's being transformed into the image of Christ as we behold Him. And so that's why Paul uses the perfect word here. But that also shines some light, no pun intended, that shines some light into the passage before us. Because Mark is describing, and Matthew as well, he's describing the change that takes place in Jesus as this metamorphosis. He didn't change in his essence or in his nature or in his character or who he is. He instead undergoes this radical, dramatic, outward, visible change. You see, God, the Son, completely God, completely man, fully God, fully human. We are deficient in our thinking of God the Son when we think of Him as God disguised as a person, God wearing skin. That's a deficient, that's a wholly deficient view of the Son of God. Jesus, the second person of the Trinity, fully God and fully man, before the resurrection, outwardly, one nature is visible. God chooses that prior to the resurrection, the outward appearance of Jesus would be the outward appearance of His human nature only. And so as God is revealing, is being transformed, as as Jesus is being metamorphosed, what God is doing is He is almost like a curtain, taking the human nature and pulling it aside to saying, this is the other nature. This is the other reality about my son. God isn't injecting anything into Jesus that wasn't there before. He isn't putting on some sort of light show. What God is doing is saying, this is also my son, but this is not seen until after the resurrection. So this is what's taking place at the transfiguration before them. This transformation, this metamorphosis. Verse 3, And his clothes became radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them. So here we see Mark really stumbling, trying to put into words what Peter is describing for him, because Mark wasn't there. Peter was there, and Peter is 
telling this or dictating this to Mark, or Mark is writing down what he's heard Peter teaching and what he's heard Peter say. And so in writing down what Peter has described, Mark is he's, he's trying to describe the indescribable. And so he begins by describing these clothes. These clothes become radiant. He describes the color intensely white as no one on earth could bleach them. In the King James, if you're in the King James, it says as no fuller could whiten them. Fuller is sort of an antiquated term. We no longer really have fullers anymore, although that may we have plenty of people with the last name of fuller, but fuller as an op- occupation. What fullers used to be, fullers used to be people that worked with wool. In particular, they would not only harvest the wool, but they would wash it and clean it and bleach it sometimes and try to, to get the wool white. That's what fullers often did. And so that's what Mark is saying. What no fuller, what no wool worker could make whiter than any of that. Now, one stark and noticeable difference that we see right away, if we were looking at the Matthew account, we would see that Matthew and Mark both describe this account very differently. Mark focuses on the clothes. He says the clothes were intensely white, whiter than any fuller could make them. He describes the clothes. He focuses on the clothes. Matthew focuses on the face, and so does Luke. But Matthew focuses on the face. He says Jesus' face became so bright like the sun, brighter than the sun. So what's to describe the difference here? Do we have a contradiction? They're both describing the same event, supposedly, right? What we see here is not evidence for a contradiction in the Scripture. Actually, what we see is evidence for the reliability. Because what these men are both doing is they are struggling to describe the supernatural in natural words. It's as though God is saying, Words are too small. I will accommodate this experience to the limitation of human words, but words are far too small. And yes, we can describe this in words, but the words won't describe it. And so each writer is writing or remembering a different aspect. It's as though Peter was saying, as he's describing this, the clothes. You should have seen the clothes. It was so white. While on the other hand, Matthew, who perhaps was writing down what he heard John describe, maybe John was saying, the face. You should have seen his face. His face was so bright and so glowing. And so both men are writing a different perspective. We would have suspicion of the Scriptures if they both were just verbatim and described this incredible supernatural event that is beyond the capacity of words if they both described it with the same words. That would cause us to say, wait a minute, they're just copying each other? But instead, they're both describing a supernatural event that defies description in words, and both are saying, let me use these words. Let me describe the clothes. Let me describe the face. And so this is actually evidence for us of God's accommodating Himself to the limitation of human language. But back to Mark's words here. His clothes became radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them. So we see here touched on a theme, and the theme is a theme that we see in both Old Testament and New Testament, and that's the theme of clothing and the color white. The color white is a consistent metaphor for purity and holiness, And we often also see this description of clothing, particularly new clothing, new robes, new linens. And that often will describe for us a sinless supernatural being. Or eventually, as we read through our New Testament, it begins to describe, who do you think? 
us as we are put into Christ. So just in your notes here, we don't, we're not going to go through each of these, but we see way back in Daniel chapter 10, describing the ancient of days, a man clothed in linen. We see from Matthew 28, this is a description of the angel, the angelic being at the resurrection. His clothing was white as snow. Again, Mark 16 on the right side of, was a man dressed in a white robe. John 20, uh, two angels in white we see the same consistent sort of thing. And then by the time we get to, well, Revelation 4, Revelation 3 and Revelation 4, we begin seeing not only our angelic beings and God Himself described in, in terms of new linens, new clothes, white clothing, and, and, but also now those who are put into Christ are described in the same way. Those who are in Revelation 3 verse 4, people who have not soiled their garments but instead they will walk with me in white. Or Revelation chapter 4, the 24 elders clothed in white garments. Revelation 6, they were give, each given a new white robe. Revelation 7, Revelation 14, Revelation 19. We can follow the, the same theme throughout. So we see here this theme of new clothes, new garments, new linens, white clothing. And we also see this theme of light. God and light are two things that the scriptures will often put together for us. For example, in Luke chapter 9 and verse 29, as Jesus was praying, the appearance of his face was altered and his clothing became dazzlingly white. That's Luke's account of this. Dazzlingly white. So literally in that passage, Luke says his clothing became white as a bolt of lightning. So think in your mind of a bolt of lightning. I don't know if you've ever had the unfortunate experience of being somewhere in the vicinity of a bolt of lightning and the brightness of it, particularly on a dark night, the brightness of a bolt of lightning. That's the phrase that Luke picks up on and says, like that, bright like that, light like a bolt of lightning coming from his face. Or Psalm 104 and verse 2, we sang this earlier. You who cover yourself with light as with a garment. You hear there, God's accommodating of Himself to human language. You clothe yourself. You wrap yourself with light. Now, God doesn't literally wrap Himself with light. But this is human language attempting to describe the divine. You wrap yourself with light. Or 1 John chapter 1 and verse 5, God is light and there is in Him no darkness at all. So His clothing became radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them. And verse 4, and there appeared to them Elijah with Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. So there appeared to them Elijah and Moses. We ask first the question, well, why Elijah and why, why Moses? And we're not told. It's not explained to us. But there's lots of reasons to connect together Elijah and Moses together with Christ. We could think of some reasons, for example, many would speculate that Elijah and Moses will appear together again in Revelation 11 as the two witnesses. We don't know that. It could be, or it could be someone else. But perhaps Elijah and Moses are the two witnesses that appear again in Revelation chapter 11. But we also see some other continuity and some other connection between Moses and Elijah and Christ. We see, for example, that Moses and Elijah both had very unique end-of-life experiences like Jesus. They had very unique end-of-life experiences. Elijah, you'll recall, is the one who did not experience physical death. Remember back in Elijah? You remember he didn't experience the physical death, but instead God took him in the chariot of fire. Or as we looked at that, we, we thought that perhaps that is more, uh, more saying more literally that the angels carried him. 
So we see that Elijah was one of two people that did not experience physical death. Moses, on the other hand, did experience physical death, but Moses is the only person that God buried. Remember that story in Deuteronomy where, God, where Moses dies and God buries him in a place where no one knows where that was. So very unusual end-of-life experiences. Also, we might make a connection between Moses and Elijah, and many have made this connection, but they would say that Moses represents the law and Elijah represents the prophets. So that connection is easy to make. Moses as the lawgiver, Mount Sinai, the tablets and all that. But then also Elijah as the representative of the prophets. And you might remember when we studied Elijah, how we, we talked about the fact that Elijah was not the first person to serve as a prophet, but he was the first person to be a prophet. That there were those before Elijah who said prophetic things, who acted in prophetic ways, but no one was a prophet until Elijah. And you remember the whole prophet school that Elijah established? So Elijah serves for us as sort of the first, the premier office of the prophet. And so some would say, well, here's Moses and here's Elijah together with Jesus. And what they represent is the law and the prophets and how all the law and all the prophets are here to attest to Jesus. And that makes sense. And that may possibly be what Mark has in mind as he's writing this for us. But there's another connection. I think this is probably the most likely connection, although in reality, it may be some of all of this. But I think probably the, the most likely connection is that both Moses and Elijah both have very strong connections with a theophany on a mountain. Remember what theophany means. Theophany is a revealing of God where God reveals himself to people. And so Moses and Elijah both have very strong and repeated experiences of God's theophany on a mountain. Remember, of course, Moses, the bush episode. Moses, once again, in Exodus 19. Moses, once again, Exodus 24. Moses, once again, Exodus 34. All the mountains and the clouds and the trumpets and the mountains quaking and shaking and all that. We also think of Elijah and Elijah's experience with mountains, Mount Carmel, and the dramatic display of God on Mount Carmel as the sacrifices were consumed. But we also think later on to Elijah's period when he was running from Jezebel and the three times that the Son of God comes to him on the mountain. So both of them are associated closely with a mountain and a revealing of God. And what's this passage? A mountain and a revealing of God. So perhaps that's the connection. We don't know. Ultimately, it doesn't matter because what matters are simply two things. Two things that we're going to notice about Elijah and Moses today. And this will be as far as we make it today. We'll pick back up with Moses and Elijah next week and continue on. But the things to notice about Elijah and Moses today simply are this. Number one, the topic of conversation. And number two, their role. Those are the only two things we need to see in Elijah and Moses. Number one, the topic of conversation. So Moses, I'm sorry, Mark tells us that Moses and Elijah are talking with Jesus. But Mark doesn't tell us what they're talking about. So fortunately, God has given to us Luke's account because in Luke chapter 9, Luke tells us the topic that Moses and Elijah were talking to Jesus about. From verse 30, Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory, this is the same event, appeared in glory and spoke of his, meaning Jesus's, spoke of his departure, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. Luke uses the word there, this translated departure, he uses the word exodus. So think about this now. Here's Moses to say, I was the one through whom God did the prefiguring, the first exodus. 
the exodus that was the shadow of the greater exodus. But we want to talk about your exodus. We want to talk about your departure. So what are they talking about? They're talking about his death. They're talking about his coming suffering and his coming death. Precisely what Peter didn't want to talk about. You remember? From just a couple of verses ago. This is precisely what Peter doesn't want to talk about that. Who do men say that I am? Who do you say that I am? You're the Christ. You are the Christ. Blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father in heaven has revealed this to you. And I say to you, you are Peter, and upon this rock I'll build my church, and the gates of Hades will not prevail against my church. And now let me begin to tell you about my suffering. Let me begin to tell you how the Son of Man is going to be treated. Let me begin to tell you how the Christ will be tortured and turned over to the Gentiles and mocked and executed. No, Jesus. No, have mercy. We're not going to talk about those sorts of things. We're not going there, Jesus. Seven days later, that's what Elijah and Moses want to talk about. We want to talk about your departure. We want to talk about this suffering. We want to talk about your sacrifice, your vicarious sacrifice on the cross. We'll circle back to that in just a minute. So the first thing is their topic of conversation. The second thing is their role. So don't let it be missed that Elijah and Moses are there. They appear. And then they're gone. And that's a big point. They are not there to stay, despite what Peter's going to say. We'll get to that next week. They're not there to stay. They are there to testify. This is the Christ. He is here now to suffer. This is what we want to talk about. And now we're gone. They're here and they fade. They are here as affirmation, as representation to say the law and the prophets point to him. And our job is to point to him and now leave. 